Book One, Chapter Three, Sections One and Two of In the Days of the Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lewis. In the Days of the Comet by H. G. Wells. Book One, Chapter Three, Sections One and Two. That comet is going to hit the Earth, so said one of the two men who got into the train and settled down. Ah, said the other man. They do say that it's made of gas, that comet. We shan't blow up, shall us? What did it matter to me? I was thinking of revenge. Revenge against the primary conditions of my being. I was thinking of Nettie and her lover. I was firmly resolved he should not have her, though I had to kill them both to prevent it. I did not care what else might happen if only that end was ensured. All my thwarted passions had turned to rage. I would have accepted eternal torment that night without a second thought to be certain of revenge. A hundred possibilities of action, a hundred stormy situations, a whirl of violent schemes, chased one another through my shamed, exasperated mind. The sole prospect I could endure was of some gigantic, inexorably cruel vindication of my humiliated self. And Nettie? I loved Nettie still, but now, with the intensest jealousy, with the keen, unmeasuring hatred of wounded pride and baffled, passionate desire. Section 2 As I came down the hill from Clayton Crest, for my shilling and a penny only permitted my traveling by train as far as two miles stone, and thence I had to walk over the hill. I remember very vividly a little man with a shrill voice who was preaching under a gas lamp against a hoarding to a thin crowd of Sunday evening loafers. He was a short man, bald, with a little fair curly beard and hair and watery blue eyes, and he was preaching that the end of the world drew near. I think that is the first time I heard anyone link the comet with the end of the world. He had got that jumbled up with international politics and prophecies from the book of Daniel. I stopped to hear him only for a moment or so. I do not think I should have halted at all, but his crowd blocked my path, and the sight of his queer wild expression, the gesture of his upward-pointing finger, held me. "'This is the end of all your sins and follies,' he bawled. There, there is the star of judgments, the judgments of the Most High God. It is appointed unto all men to die, unto all men to die. His voice changed to a curious flat chant, and after death the judgment, the judgment. I pushed and threaded my way through the bystanders and went on, and his curious harsh flat voice pursued me. I went on with the thoughts that had occupied me before, where I could buy a revolver, and how I might master its use. And probably I should have forgotten all about him had he not taken part in the hideous dream that ended the little sleep I had that night. For the most part, 
I lay awake thinking of Nettie and her lover. Then came three strange days, three days that seemed now to have been wholly concentrated upon one business. This dominant business was the purchase of my revolver. I held myself resolutely to the idea that I must either restore myself by some extraordinary act of vigor and violence in Nettie's eyes, or I must kill her. I would not let myself fall away from that. I felt that if I let this matter pass, my last shred of pride and honor would pass with it, that for the rest of my life I should never deserve the slightest respect or any woman's love. Pride kept me to my purpose between my gusts of passion. Yet it was not easy to buy that revolver. I had a kind of shyness of the moment when I should have to face the shopman, and I was particularly anxious to have a story ready if he should see fit to ask questions why I bought such a thing. I determined to say I was going to Texas, and I thought it might prove useful there. Texas in those days had the reputation of a wild, lawless land. As I knew nothing of caliber or impact, I wanted also to be able to ask with a steady face at what distance a man or woman could be killed by the weapon that might be offered me. I was pretty cool-headed in relation to such practical aspects of my affair. I had some little difficulty in finding a gunsmith. In Clayton there were some rook rifles and so forth in a cycle shop, but the only revolvers these people had impressed me as being too small and toy-like for my purpose. It was in a pawn-shop window in the narrow high street of Swathinglees that I found my choice. A reasonably clumsy and serious-looking implement ticketed as used in the American Army. I had drawn out my balance from the savings bank, matter of two pounds and more to make this purchase, and I found it, at last, a very easy transaction. The pawnbroker told me where I could get ammunition, and I went home that night with bulging pockets and armed man. The purchase of my revolver was, I say, the chief business of those days, but you must not think I was so intent upon it as to be insensible to the stirring things that were happening in the streets through which I went, seeking the means to effect my purpose. They were full of murmurings. The whole region of the four towns scowled lowering from its narrow doors. The ordinary healthy flow of people going to work, people going about their business, was chilled and checked. Numbers of men stood about the street in knots and groups, as corpuscles gather and catch in the blood vessels in the opening stage of inflammation. The women looked haggard and worried. The ironworkers had refused the proposed reduction of their wages, and the lockout had begun. They were already at play. The conciliation board was doing its best to keep the coal miners and masters from a breach, but young Lord Redcar, the greatest of our coal owners and landlord of all Swathinglees and half of Clayton, was taking a fine, upstanding attitude that made the breach inevitable. He was a handsome young man, a gallant young man. His pride revolted at the idea of being dictated to by a lot of bally miners, and he meant, he said, to make a fight for it. The world had treated him sumptuously from his earliest years. 
the shares in the common stock of five thousand people had gone to pay for his handsome upbringing and large romantic expensive ambitions filled his generously nurtured mind he had early distinguished himself at oxford by his scornful attitude towards democracy there was something that appealed to the imagination in his fine antagonism to the crowd on the one hand was the brilliant young nobleman picturesquely alone on the other the ugly inexpressive multitude dressed inelegantly in shop clothes undereducated underfed envious base and with a wicked disinclination for work and a wicked appetite for the good things it could so rarely get for common imaginative purposes one left out the policeman from the design the stalwart policeman protecting his lordship and ignored the fact that while lord redcar had his hands immediately and legally on the workmen's shelter and bread they could touch him to the skin only by some violent breach of the law he lived at lowchester house five miles or so beyond checkshill but partly to show how little he cared for his antagonist and partly no doubt to keep himself in touch with the negotiations that were still going on he was visible almost every day in and about the four towns driving that big motor-car of his that could take him sixty miles an hour the english passion for fair play one might have thought sufficient to rob this bold procedure of any dangerous possibilities but he did not go altogether free from insult and on one occasion at least an intoxicated irishwoman shook her fist at him a dark quiet crowd that was greater each day a crowd more than half women brooded as a cloud will sometimes brood permanently upon a mountain crest in the market-place outside clayton town hall where the conference was held i consider myself justified in regarding lord redcar's passing automobile with a special animosity because of the leaks in our roof we held our little house on lease the owner was a mean saving old man named pettigrew who lived in a villa adorned with plaster images of dogs and goats at overcastle and in spite of our specific agreement he would do no repairs for us at all he rested secure in my mother's timidity once long ago she had been behindhand with her rent with half of her quarter's rent and he had extended the days of grace a month her sense that some day she might need the same mercy again made her his abject slave she was afraid even to ask that he should cause the roof to be mended for fear he might take offence but one night the rain poured in on her bed and gave her a cold and stained and soaked her poor old patchwork counterpane then she got me to compose an excessively polite letter to old pettigrew begging him as a favor to perform his legal obligation it is part of the general imbecility of those days that such one-sided law as existed was a profound mystery to the common people its provisions impossible to ascertain its machinery impossible to set in motion instead of the clearly written code the lucid statements of rules and principles that are now at the service of every one the law was the muddled secret of the legal profession poor people overworked people 
had constantly to submit to petty wrongs because of the intolerable uncertainty not only of law but of cost and of the demands upon time and energy proceedings might make there was indeed no justice for any one too poor to command a good solicitor's deference and loyalty there was nothing but rough police protection and the magistrates grudging or eccentric advice for the mass of the population the civil law in particular was a mysterious upper-class weapon and i can imagine no injustice that would have been sufficient to induce my poor old mother to appeal to it all this begins to sound incredible i can only assure you that it was so but i when i learned that old pettigrew had been down to tell my mother all about his rheumatism to inspect the roof and to allege that nothing was needed gave way to my most frequent emotion in those days a burning indignation and took the matter into my own hands i wrote and asked him with a withering air of technicality to have the roof repaired as per agreement and added if not done in one week from now we shall be obliged to take proceedings i had not mentioned this high line of conduct to my mother at first and so when old pettigrew came down in a state of great agitation with my letter in his hand she was almost equally agitated how could you write to old mr pettigrew like that she asked me i said that old pettigrew was a shameful old rascal or words to that effect and i am afraid i behaved in a very undutiful way to her when she said that she had settled everything with him she wouldn't say how but i could guess well enough and that i was to promise her promise her faithfully to do nothing more in the matter i wouldn't promise her and having nothing better to employ me then i presently went raging to old pettigrew in order to put the whole thing before him in what i considered the proper light old pettigrew evaded my illumination he saw me coming up his front steps i can still see his queer old nose and the crinkled brow over his eye and the little wisp of gray hair that showed over the corner of his window blind and he instructed his servant to put up the chain when she answered the door and to tell me that he would not see me so i had to fall back upon my pen then it was as i had no idea what were the proper proceedings to take the brilliant idea occurred to me of appealing to lord redcar as the ground landlord and as it were our feudal chief and pointing out to him that his security for his rent was depreciating in old pettigrew's hands i added some general observations on leaseholds the taxation of ground rents and the private ownership of the soil and lord redcar whose spirit revolted at democracy and who cultivated a pert humiliating manner with his inferiors to show as much earned my distinguished hatred forever by causing his secretary to present his compliments to me and his request that i would mind my own business and leave him to manage his at which i was so greatly enraged that i first tore this note into minute innumerable pieces and then dashed it dramatically all over the floor of my room from which to keep my mother from the job i afterward had to pick it up laboriously on all fours 
I was still meditating a tremendous retort, an indictment of all Lord Redcar's class, their manners, morals, economic and political crimes, when my trouble with Nettie arose to swamp all minor troubles, yet not so completely but that I snarled aloud when his lordship's motor-car whizzed by me as I went about my long meandering quest for a weapon, and I discovered after a time that my mother had bruised her knee and was lame. Fearing to irritate me by bringing the thing before me again, she had set herself to move her bed out of the way of the drip without my help, and she had knocked her knee. All her poor furnishings, I discovered, were cowering now close to the peeling bedroom walls. There had come a vast discoloration of the ceiling, and a washing-tub was in occupation of the middle of her chamber. It is necessary that I should set these things before you, should give you the key of inconvenience and uneasiness in which all things were arranged, should suggest the breath of trouble that stirred among the hot summer streets, the anxiety about the strike, the rumors and indignations, the gatherings and meetings, the increasing gravity of the policemen's faces, the combative headlines of the local papers, the knots of picketers who scrutinized anyone who passed near the silent, smokeless forges, but in my mind, you must understand, such impressions came and went irregularly. They made a moving background, changing undertones, to my preoccupation by that darkly shaping purpose to which a revolver was so imperative and essential. Along the darkling streets, amidst the sullen crowds, the thought of Nettie, my Nettie, and her gentleman lover, made ever a vivid, inflammatory spot of purpose in my brain. End of Book One, Chapter Three, Sections One and Two